What's going on with dance and stuff? What's happening with dance and things? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on with dance and stuff? That was the Berg version. Hi. Hi. Here we are again. Almost a year since my library fellowship and your fellowship's coming right up. And it is coming right up. It's always copying me. (laughs) (laughs) Always. You started wearing bags and then I started wearing bags. Mm -hmm. You got a library fellowship and then I got a library fellowship. You liked Balanchine and then I liked some of it. Right. Some of it. You have clinical depression? When will I? It's there. <laughs> it's absolutely there. And then you follow me too. I've had clinical depression. You're a slip and slide in your way right on down to the end of that that plastic wet mat. I don't think um, so. I'm pretty good. Oh yeah? Yeah. Why? I don't I couldn't tell you. It's just how my chemicals are. You just feel pretty good. Yeah, I feel okay. When do you go to bed? So late last night. Well, I know last night, but when on genre? Try to get in bed around midnight. And then when did you wake up? Try to wake up around 8, 8.30. So you get eight hours of sleep. Try. You yeah. sleep solidly. I'm really good at it. And you have... Oh, I had the craziest dream about Sarah Mitchelson. Ooh. She was doing a performance at the kitchen, and it was not the kitchen we see now. It was as if you took the new Dixon place, the old Dixon place, the kitchen... Shea Bushwick and kind of mushed those spaces all together. Mm-hmm. And she was doing this piece with, with all women and like holding, uh, like holding a leg up while dislocating their ribs while she screamed at them. And I, you know, I loved it. That's I was like, yes. and then towards the end of it, she started cut. She took a razor oh. and started cutting into the back of her scalp. No, this is the story I told so, you today so, about Jeffrey Star getting the hair transplant surgery. No, this is this was the dream, and it happened days ago. And all this blood started like ah. just like little rivulets of blood started coming down. And I was like, and then she was cleaning up after the show, and I was like, that was a really great piece, Sarah. And she um, was sort of distraught, but also said thank you. Her head hurt, you know, Maybe. from the blood. I letting. think I was fusing it with this old piece by, he's based in Brussels, or they are based in Brussels. Jeremy. And I can't remember their name. They did the piece where... Daniel uh, Linehan. Where they had that person throw up all over that other person, all that blue vomit. Remember Lindsay Clark saw it? Um, was it Daniel Linehan? No, no, no. This uh, performer's bait is is Belgian, I believe. Oh, I do remember her some vomit. I want to say it's Dito, but it's not. Dito von Tito. Can you imagine? And at the end of that piece, he made these little incisions on his eyebrows with razor blades while, like, blood <sighs> ran over his face while going, It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. <sighs> I don't and I remember being that. like, that's really good. So uh-huh. I think it's just this kind of like mix of, I think in my dream, I was, I've been dreaming of like shows I want to see. Things dream like that. My little dream. But speaking of shows and dreams and shows I'll never get to see. Um, yeah. The uh, Jeremy's and my AIDS oral history project is coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, I've listened to dancers, choreographers who I wish were still making work. And um, it was begun by Leslie Farlow uh, when she was at the library. And so Jeremy and I were able to interview her, which was inspiring. 
And that's what the pod's going to be today. It's a great interview. I already listened to it. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to understand how devastating and how devastated the whole dance community has been. Um, And that she actually spoke to these people is so tremendous. Yeah. Librarians are important. Librarians are important, and I have mad respect for the librarians at the Jerome Robbins Dance Division, helmed by our icon, Linda Murray. Oh, Really, who I... I, She's... Talk about... top ten lists. Speaking of... I know. Talk about if I just kind of do, like, a top ten list of, like, people on this planet. Linda. Linda Murray, someone who I I hope to be more like. You're doing the AIDS oral history. Correct. What are the other oral histories being talked about in the... Symposium. So it's not, the symposium is not oral histories. Oh. There's former curators uh, at the library decided uh, what the different subjects would be for this, for their anniversary. Um, and so Madeline Nichols, who uh, worked in the Jerome Robbins Dance Division, picked uh, the AIDS Oral History Project um, as a uh, as the as what it be it gets sometimes I feel like sometimes the language gets confused into the AIDS Legacy Project, which was a different project that was started in San Francisco. And what are some of the other topics? The other fellows are um, so Triwi Harjito. I believe that's how her name is pronounced. Um, is the Genevieve Oswald Fellow, and she's working with the Claire Holt Collection. Uh, Jeremy and I are the Madeline Nichols Fellow for. Um, the AIDS World History Project, uh, the Michelle Potter Fellow, who will be going through the Khmer Dance Project. Uh, they It's two fellows. It's Emily Coates and Emmanuel Fuan, but they are separate. They're not working together. Um, the Jan Smith Fellow uh, for the Dance Theater Workshop Collection is Tara Aisha Willis. The Dance Curator Fellow... Uh, we'll be going through the Selma Jean Cohen collection is Elizabeth Zimmer, who has been a total treat to run into yeah, and she has is really fun. Really she uh uh she turned me on to this um to a book that was actually really helpful for the research that we're doing. Um and then uh the dance division fellow, which is a topic selected by the dance division staff instead of a former curator, uh was the dance division photography files and that's a Polynesian share who will be working with the Barbara what Morgan, great, Martha Graham. Great day. I'm I I I hope I come and sit through all the hours, but we'll see. It's it's a quite a commitment. It's quite a commitment. It's it's quite a commitment. People should, if you want to come, you absolutely should register. Um, it's all there on the NYPL, Jerome Robbins Dance Division. January 24th, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. January 24th for their 75th anniversary. And will Leslie be there at the show? We hope. Leslie Farlow, I believe. I mean, she said she was going to try to come. Okay. So you're at a good time slot right before dinner. Right before the, right at the very end. Yeah. Yeah. Though it's also very wracking. It's hard to wait the whole day. Were you the last one? I was. It's it's nerve wracking. Well, also like you want to be present for everyone else's lectures, and you want to like, oh my god, trying to listen to everybody else only just made me more and more nervous. Yeah, well, I mean, it's I mean, it's I'm still unpacking how much of this is functioning as lecture, as performance. Jeremy has made this incredible video, and I mean, I'm we're still uh, adjusting all of those pieces. It'll all keep getting adjusted until. 
Until it has to be bird's eye for the day, until it has to be frozen. Yeah, but also it is a, it's a lecture. It's not like a finished Broadway show. So no. there's nothing that has to be. It just will be. Right. That's something that you can continue to repeat to Jeremy and I, who uh, have uh, incredible feelings of um, obsession, uh, compulsion, and disorder. <laughs> All those <laughs> OCD, who just fully... It's going to be great. Well, it's because it's... I, I think what's been so difficult in working with it is... Um, it's sad. Layers of grief that I didn't... I hadn't anticipated feeling so strongly. Mm-hmm. That I've known were there, that I've been talking about since forever. Mm-hmm. Um... I mean, as you know, I start at the beginning of every semester talking about this with my students. So I've I've seen the movies. I've read some books. I've, I think about, I'm not talking about Harry Condolian and Reza Abda in it because I'm keeping it focused to the oral history in terms of the dance division. But there are two performance makers who I wish I could talk to all the time. Um, So it is... uh, yeah, it's um, it's been a rough one. This has been a really uh, hard one to do. I think it's great. I think that the library will be very grateful to have whatever information you guys put together. And it is sad, but that is the reality of the situation, and it needs to be talked about. Well, it was wild in, in starting with these oral histories is it opens up into other people There's who weren't interviewed. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there isn't... There, there are people who, I mean, Ulysses Dove doesn't have one. Mm-hmm. Alvin Ailey's not on there, of course. Right. Uh, John Byrne, who Miguel and Ish did that piece about, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I think it was two years ago when they, when they did that remount and brought att- attention back to John's work, which I think was really important and beautiful. Um, he doesn't have one. I mean, there's, it goes on and on who doesn't have one. And their names will just be quickly said in some of these. And it it gives the sort of broadening feeling of the virus, of this thing that is spreading and taking and removing. And um, that's hard. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a hard one. Because there's no way to be, to have any kind of concrete thing with this archive. I can talk some about what the archive itself has what the context of it was, uh, and then what that means in terms of where we are now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see it, and I hope all your hard work feels like um, something you'd be proud of. Thanks. I think I'm really excited for it to be over. (laughs) (laughs) And that's okay. It's not great to think about people who died in a very unfortunate way. Yeah, and who feel would have been there for us. This photo of Neil carrying his brother's coffin. I mean, Neil, Neil Greenberg. Greenberg. Oh yeah. I mean, people who are, who people who are really there for it, people who are really, uh, like we have to look at this. We have to, this is a problem. And people who weren't like Peter Martins. What? It was like nothing to see here. How so? Uh, it was in a documentary that Jeremy found. Different people's, you know, talking about 
the effect of AIDS on the community. And there's a, there's a thing of the need to underplay the effect because of donors and uh-huh. continuity and people, you know, investing And people feeling money. safe in like who can be touched in this company, etc. And right, this whole right. thing about bodies and their touchability. Right. And, and Peter Martins basically says, there's no, there's, there's no problem in any of the companies I know about. <laughs> that is, well, continuity yeah. right there. Yeah. Yeah. At any rate. So. I'm sorry you've had to go through this, but I'm glad that. That it'll be out there right. and that there will be this. Um, because it's also an archive that I don't know how many people are aware of. I mean, I don't know how many people are aware of just the oral history archive itself, right. which is uh, incredible. Right. I mean, Martha Graham has one. Balanchine has one. Well, that's it's, what these projects ultimately are for, to like reveal to us what is in the library and right. what there is to be learned. Yeah. Because so much of it just, it's not something that you can just Google or get your hands on via the internet in the way that we all learn nowadays, but it's actually things you have to seek out. Yeah. Anyways, I hope you all enjoy this interview as much as I did. And um, have a blessed day. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Well, up next, it's Jeremy and I talking with Leslie Farlow. Okay, hi, Hello, ladies welcome. Hi, welcome. Hi, uh, we're here. Hi, we're here. It's okay, Reed so, and Jack. Yeah, you need to go to iTunes. Have you heard of iTunes? Go there. It's and we need a, you to um, rate, what you call it? comment. It's a storage thing for music and sound. <laughs> you're going to go to iTunes and you're going to go to Dance and Stuff podcast. And rate and comment. And you also have to subscribe, absolutely. And subscribe. And because the more comments we get, the more listeners we get, and then the more people you can talk about this podcast with. Uh, also, also, don't forget that we are still on YouTube. We have a bunch of videos we made. Go check them out. And not also, only made, you can also watch videos we like. Yeah, that's true. You can also watch videos that we like. Also, uh, we have a Patreon. Please consider supporting us. And um, because and I would say, here's your my recommendation. Knowing the demographic of our supporters, uh-huh. cap it off at five. Don't think that you need to give us any more than $5, because if all of you gave us $5, we would build the Dance and Stuff Center for Podcast Education Upstate. Tea, so honey, tea. this is basically our Kickstarter, like Marina Abramovic. Except we'll follow through. Thank yous. Hi, Leslie. Uh. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this with us. Hi. My absolute pleasure. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a real thing already going through the AIDS oral history project. And it just means a lot to be able to speak with you and to hear about uh, how it was for you at that time. Pretty extraordinary, I would say. Yeah. Well, how did, yeah, how did it start? How did it start? Well, that's a good question. So I'm a young dancer in New York. Uh, you know, all my friends are dancers. I'm dancing in different companies and working with people and um, taking ballet classes, right? And um, I was taking, uh, well, one of my first friends to get sick was a visual artist named David Friedlander, who was living on the corner of Broadway and Houston on the top floor. And we did all kinds of installations. He was a friend from college and he started to get sick. Another friend who got sick was John Burned. And he would come, I would take, we were in ballet class together. He was also a friend of one of my roommates. He would, we had a studio in our loft and he would come and we would 
work together and stuff, and he was starting to really, um, he was making work about his identity, who he was. He was very out in a, at a time when people were not so out and um, starting to, to really talk about being sick. I was working at the Library for Performing Arts at Lincoln Center in the most amazing job in the world. I ran the oral history project. I got to meet extraordinary people, arrange interviews with people, and read interviews that had already been made. So I was getting an incredible education in dance history, and I was also starting my graduate degree in performance studies at NYU, sort of all around this time. Um, at some point on the project, we were beginning to realize that a lot of our friends were getting sick, and they were starting to die. Eddie Sterley died. And we thought this project was really devoted to people at the end of their careers. I'm talking to people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, who could reflect on a long career, which is extraordinary. But there was a huge group of people now who may not have a long career. And, you know, this was a time when they were calling it GRID and, you know, gay-related immune deficiency. And there was um, a not a lot of talk about it. And certainly outside of our community, people weren't talking about it at all. Nobody knew that Alvin Ailey had AIDS. Nobody knew that, you know, um, people who are now acknowledged to have had AIDS had it, Nureyev and, you know, some of the more famous people. But our friends were getting sick. And we thought we need to document the history of dance as it's being made and as it is... Um, responding to this kind of extraordinary and bizarre phenomenon. And nobody had any idea where this was going to end. Um, so I thought, well, all right, I'll start to talk to my friends. And people were saying, but I, I don't really want to be known as the dancer with AIDS or HIV or any of that. I don't want to be known as the choreographer with that. And so I talked to Arnie Zane. And Arnie said, okay, Leslie, I will talk. You know Arnie. I mean, I don't know if you knew Arnie, but Arnie was very outspoken. And so he was the first person I interviewed for the project. Um, and the idea to create this project as sort of a subset of the regular oral history project was a combination of ideas. Nancy Shawcross, who was um, uh, sort of the manuscripts um, curator and librarian, had been thinking about it. We talked about it, she and I. And I can't remember if at the time we had sort of put a little bit in one of our the grants we were working on, if we had sort of put something in about it. I, I don't recall if it happened before or after we actually started the project. But we realized, so I talked to Arnie. I went to his house in Valley Cottage, and I had known him for years, been in class together. I knew Bill. We had, I had friends in the company. So it was, it was sort of an easy uh, way to start, you know, with somebody that I knew. And um, I thought a lot about this whole idea. And I thought, so the idea is to document the lives of dancers and other people in the field who are living with AIDS, which is how I wanted to say it, instead of dying from. And, but what I really wanted to know about was their artistic vision. Who are they as dancers? What are they creating? What do they hope to create? And in that way, create a, a, a history of perhaps the potential of dance history. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so rather than focusing on, oh, what are your symptoms? And oh, how right. awful mm -hmm. this is, you right. know, which of course comes up. Um, I wanted to focus on what is your, who are you as an artist? Uh, so that's what I started to talk about with Arnie. You know, what, how did you start 
dancing. You were a visual artist. And I, you know, he just sort of went through his history and we had the best time. His, you know, he was his, dragging photos out from under his bed yeah, and, yeah. you know, sort of getting up and showing me things and getting back down. So at that moment, the opportunistic infection that he was struggling with was lymphoma, um, which really affected his ability to breathe and, you know, of course, his energy level. Um, but he talked about creating the gift, No God Logic. Right. He talked about working with Damien and creating D-Man and um, just all of the things his life as an artist, which is what was so um, important, and to get on, to get his perspective on his life as an artist, we would have his work. Fortunately, we would have his early work with um, Bill and, and videotaped and everything. But the process of creating it and what his vision was, and then what it felt like to him to realize that the full range of his vision was not going to be realized. You know, and that's just kind of an extraordinary thing for someone to face and to think about. What do I do? You know, the abyss <laughs> is about to open. And how do I address that, you know, as a human being, as an artist? So that was kind of where we started. And he also said, and Leslie, I will tell people to talk to you. So, of course, he Well, did. and he gave you names of <laughs> yes. people in that, yes, which was did. so incredible. Or when he talked about his, about the letters he was sending the letter that he sent to, um, I think he says he sent letters to Deborah Jowett, who yeah. was writing at the Times yeah. about people who were dying and being like, you can't right. protect these people by saying that they're right. dying of heart attacks. We, right. we don't have time for that. Yes. Because yeah. she was like, well, I'm trying to protect the families. And he said, we, right. we can't right yeah. now. And then it's so wild in that interview for him to list people to you while mm -hmm. it's being recorded, saying, well, you should yeah. talk to, and then yeah. he goes through. Yeah, that recording was so it was so I mean, it was devastating for me to listen to because yeah. I so wanted to talk with him. Yeah. I, I was so related to being someone hyper emotional who wanted yeah. to make Lucinda Child's work. Like yes. that yes. part in his right. interview. There's no greater contrast right there. <laughs> was so crazy. And then it's so yeah. funny when he talks about making that piece at PS122 where they have the part called Feeding the Chickens. Yeah. Where <laughs> it's and he's such yeah. a pleasure and it's and then as you're listening to it you know i mean i obviously yeah, on this right. side of it there's also yeah. this sense of where it's resting it as a time capsule right right that's being opened and, and at the time he knew that he wasn't going to survive but when you are dealing with even a terminal illness there's always that little bit of well maybe maybe they will refine the cocktail maybe there'll be something right. that will extend it and of course we know that that fortunately happened for bill right. i mean that they really refined the cocktail to the point where it could become more of a chronic condition than a uh -huh. death sentence which is a whole the whole other you know shift and arnie had been he had already you know he talked sort of about like thinking he was not going to be able to make any work at another point so, yeah. had, you know, there yeah. were these cycles of, I think this is probably it. And then it isn't, yeah. but, you know, and then, so that right. hope lingers in this kind of yeah. uh, cycle. And it was such a roller coaster, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. it's just, I, I don't even know what it must, I can't imagine what it must feel like internally to, to be facing all of these things and then having things change. You know, you think, okay, this is it. Oh, it's not it. Yeah. You know, I mean, just... That's such a, um, you know, sort of a difficult thing, I think, to, to 
come to terms with. Well, and that the stigma around it is so different than cancer or these other yes. things. I mean, at this point Absolutely. too, there's this whole other thing in that it's, um, I mean, obviously everyone still wants to figure out how cancer works today. Mm-hmm. And at this, but at that point, people already had it. And that was, it, there wasn't this stigma around it as well right. that was um, sexual and right. being viewed as sexual and drug users and right. mainly like And it's some kind of users. visitation yeah. from God. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's just yeah. kind of like this, some kind of punishment. Although, yeah. you know, have you read... Um, uh, Making Dances in a Plague? Well, there's that, of course. But also, um, oh, where's my brain? Not Suzanne Langer. Lucinda Charles Parder, you know who she is, who wrote the extraordinary book on AIDS uh, and as a disease and, and as disease as a... Um, sort of cultural phenomenon cancer oh, as Sondra. reflections. Yes, Thank you. yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank it's you. a real this is yeah. a real like let me have some more yeah. coffee right now. <laughs> yes, I know and mine I don't 10, know how I did with mine. So <laughs> 30 and I was But old. so Susan Sontag's work is a real interesting investigation of how disease is a cultural right. phenomenon and the approach to disease is a cultural phenomenon. Right. So of course cancer went through that. Right. You know that no one would people would whisper, "Oh, she's sick." Right. right. You know, and there would be no identification of what it was. So it's so that was happening with AIDS, certainly. And this whole thing about protecting the families and how, and as you probably know, families would disown their child right. who was suffering. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 the becoming a pariah mm-hmm. at a time in your life when you were barely alive and needed services and support and well and arnie talks about in his interview about the whole thing about camps he was like you know and i've heard about these camps and you know just where that was going with this heinous a government that we were in that's also i mean we'll get to it in a bit when i also want to talk about the culture wars as this is all happening as this real double whammy of a nightmare well and what's striking to me in this conversation is is the the reality of as it's happening it's not it's it's sort of not canonized you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. looking back now hindsight there's a kind of romance around like this time of kind of uh, terror you know that, right because it's contained for us now right right, right. In, in history but right. at the time That's a very it's good just point. kind of chaotic no one knows there aren't like Complete chaos. there isn't the sense of like this is a historical moment in how we behave is, you know, going to be understood by future generations as it's like, how am I going to survive? Everyone right. hates me. No one cares about me. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and I, but I think that a little bit of that historicization was going on in, for example, like Arnie's letter to Deborah Jowett. Right. Uh-huh. You know, he was uh-huh. thinking about how are people going to perceive this now and in the future? And certainly, um, you know, it, the, the oral history project, the AIDS oral history project was sort of part of that way of thinking. And also yes. um, Jeff Friedman's work in San Francisco. Yes. Um, so there were people out there thinking, this is a phenomenon. This is, we, right. we're in the middle of something. We don't know what, how it's going to resolve or if it ever will, but we have to address it as something more than just, and I don't mean to diminish, but just the individual experience. It has, right. We have to look at it as something bigger. Well, and, and the imperative of, making sure people know that people they know are dying of this, you know, it's also about getting the stories into the world at the time so that these people who are hidden away, society wants to hide away. Which which it's very interesting to think of how much then that changed 
what your work had been to date in terms of, and you talked about this in the beginning, in mm-hmm. terms of an oral history project, in right. terms of it's, uh, there's this one way in which it's been being done, which is a look back, a review, mm-hmm. a cataloging, mm-hmm. um, a, an understanding one's relationship in the canon at, at more right. at the time of having created a body of work that one, of course, might not feel satisfied fully with, because when do we ever get to that? But that one knows that one has had one's time. And that right. this is all of a sudden coming in and making this puncture in this very different way into how this will proceed. Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it. And what we're, and I'm very, I mean, I under, I can't understand and I won't be able to understand, I, and I hope I won't be able to understand in my lifetime what it is to have my friends dying all around me in my earlier life, in my 20s mm-hmm. and 30s, mm-hmm. in, a, in a sense of here, here everyone is going and I, what is this thing and why is it being treated this way by the government? Why is Ronald Reagan laughing? Like It's like, right. I mean, the nightmare of that uh, inside of the injustice and the terror of who's next and how yes. does it spread? There's, of course, that part of it too. Right, and it's like, right. can we touch? Can we kiss? Right, Like just right. all of those steps of finding out all of that. I mean, at one point, Gay Men's Health Crisis was saying the only kind of sex you can have is with rubber gloves on that's masturbation that way. Mm-hmm. And, but don't kiss. You know, I mean, it, just that even it had yeah. to go through all of that. Yeah. So I'm curious about how it was for you in now starting this oral history project. Arnie's saying, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to do this. And then how it felt for you in this thing of your, because you're at, I was, it's amazing, you're at performance studies. So there's this thing going on where already you're, mm-hmm. you do in, in a way, or maybe it felt good or maybe not, that there was theory that you were able to look at and, but maybe all that just goes out the window. I don't think at the I moment. was there. Right. Totally. So it not just there is fully it. emotional. It was really, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it yeah. was to a great extent. I mean, because, you know, I tell this story, and you may have heard this elsewhere, but um, it was like going to class in the morning. I mean, I'm a dancer, I'm going to class, I'm rehearsing. I stand at the bar with all my, you know, people that I know, my friends, and somebody sneezes. And you can just see the heads whip around. You can see the thought bubbles, oh my God, no, not him too. I mean, it's every day you you hear somebody sick. I had a, a my a friend actually who also worked at the dance class. His name was Tom Eust, and he said, and his partner uh, was sick with a bad cold, and then it was pneumonia. Oh, it's just pneumonia. Oh, it's just a cold. Oh, it's you know everybody gets that it. it's that time of year, and I could hear the terror under his voice, and I could feel the terror. It's gonna be. You know, it's we're we're gonna it's gonna be pneumocystis carini. I mean, it's gonna be it's that's gonna be it. It's right. not just pneumonia. It's not just a cold. So you never knew what was what. Yeah. You know, what is this little mark over here? You know, oh, it's just a bruise. Right. Oh, right. I just it must have been you know a strap or something. And then you know, Kaposi sarcoma shows up. You know, it's just you. Nobody ever knew. Or I think of Isha's piece, them that you know got to come back. When Ishmael Houston Jones piece them got to come oh, back, yeah. and there's the whole there's a whole part that's the lymph node checking inside of that dance yeah. of 
what that was when one was feeling that swell is, does it mean that? Is my immune system kicking on now against that? What happened in the earlier years, um, just to sort of get back to a little bit sort of the Arnie's aim time when we were putting this together, one of the things we thought about is we need to have the information out there that this exists so people can come to us. Um, and I, there's a s- small irony in the fact that the very first publication to, to um, put anything in, 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 to publish anything about this project was the Orlando Sentinel. Um, and then London Times, and then Jennifer Dunning wrote about it for the New York Times. And so it was starting, there was little bits in Dance Magazine, so it was starting to be um, people able to read about it, primarily people in the dance community, although certainly more people in the New York Times than the dance community read the New York Times, but um, the information was starting to get out there. And therefore, we were able to sort of fold it into the funding that we were working on for the, the overall oral history project. Right. I don't really know what happened after I left the project. I left it because I was, um, my ex-husband, my late ex-husband was uh, going to Yale Drama School. As and an so actor? We were, as an actor, yeah. So wow. we were moving out of uh, New York. Uh, we had our apartment in New York, but we were sort of going to get an apartment in New Haven as well. And so I was sort of going back and forth. And at that point, I thought it would be best if um, Susan ran the project because I, I couldn't be there. You know, it was just like one of those things. Right. I was sure I was going to come back within the next few years, which I, I sort of ultimately did. But um, so the process of losing funding that part of it I wasn't I wasn't really there for that well it seems like what happened at the time I mean from these articles was that it mm-hmm. it lost its own specific funding for it being for going under the AIDS oral history project so that's when it then yeah. shifts to back to the oral history project right it got folded and, in in a bigger way right yeah. and so then when it takes out the AIDS oral history project it means that especially how you're going to conduct these interviews it's just a different container of starting the interview. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. and I again, I wasn't part of that in right. you know myself right. because I was really uh, I was there really for the sort of the the sort of urgent years, if you want to put them right. that way, um, right. for the of the project. When you would be conducting the interviews with both Arnie and Clara, I mean, it's I mean, there's I'm I'm thinking through all of them as as I'm speaking. There and they're each so different. Can you speak a little bit to what it was like in the room before you would start recording and what it was like when you would stop. Oh, interesting question. Maybe Clark, since he seems also so close with you. Well, you know, and also Burton Taylor's interview, which went on over a period. I mean, he, we just ended up being very close friends. We ended up just talking on the phone all the time. I got to know his sister. Um, um, those interviews were very interesting. and the, And it was sort of, a similar situation in many interviews. I went to his house. He was living in White Plains, and he was ill. He was in bed. Right. Um, so I put my little tape recorder on the bed, and we would sit and talk, um, and his little new puppy would jump on the bed. And his 99-year-old father was living with him. Um, and I think I've told this story before where uh, we'd be doing the interview. His father was sort of suffering from a little bit of dementia, and he would kind of come shuffling in and go, Barton, Barton. Mm-hmm. I think I'm ready for lunch. And so we would have to turn the tape recorder off and sort of get him settled and then start again. And it was really, um, the atmosphere I wanted to create was one of a conversation. 
and yeah. let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. Here are my here are my objectives. Here are the right. things that we want to think about. But and Burton was very forthcoming and really sort of uh, really understood the nature of that because he really wanted to um, uh, articulate what his vision was and what he felt his contribution to dance had been. Yeah. As a performer, as a writer, he was um, as a mentor to younger dancers. Yeah. Um, so uh, there was a real feeling of sort of. Um, excitement yeah. about doing that. Yeah. Um, and we just got closer and closer. You know, it just really felt like um, this strong personal and emotional connection, as it is with when you talk to somebody in depth about things that really matter to you. You just yeah. feel like you're sharing something on not just an objective level, but a deep emotional level. Well, and I'm curious if that also felt different from the oral history project in that way. I mean, they are um, different in the, I mean, because in this yeah. one, there's a sense of, um, in this other way, I feel like th- there could be the container too with the oral history projects where they can be focused more on the career than the personal. Yes. And yes. there is this thing, of course, in terms of the personal is political and the way that that mm-hmm. really comes through in the AIDS oral history project mm-hmm. of right. it's it's the imperative actually in this moment. Yeah. And it was also so tricky because of course there's a very, there's a very different, there's different discourses that I've read about that time of people being like, no, this isn't going to be part of the art or I don't want it to be part of the art or critics being like, I don't want it to be part of the art. And then other people saying it has to be part of the art. Right. There's no time for filigree. Right. We have to go right into the heart of the matter and is art here for society or is it here just for your entertainment? What's the division of that? I mean, it really is becoming so polarized at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good point. Um, uh, in fact, I wrote my master's thesis about that. <laughs> um, oh, can you, do you mind sending that? Because I would um, love well, I'll see to. if I can find it. I must have it as a PDF somewhere. I don't know that it's brilliant. I just, be, you know, already I know, but like... I'd be curious at that time because it's this mm-hmm. thing that, and why I wanted to talk to you was I wanted, I wanted an oral history project <laughs> with you mm-hmm. about this. Yeah. What inside. it was like in the moment. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, um, I, first of all, to address the first part of that question, which was um, the divide uh, of opinion about does this does uh-huh. this come into the work or does it not? Of course, you know the whole thing about Arlene Croce's article, you know that very classic, um, yeah. and I teach that to my students who kind of don't get it. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but I say you know this was a time when people needed to. I mean, what is the what is the function of an artist? You know, right. we go back to the Hamlet quote. Um, right. It's it's really to be a mirror, or some people believe that. Many artists believe that I exist I, in this I time period. Said, I've said that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely, in interviews, I've said I'm a mirror, and yeah. that's what I'm doing here. Yeah. And, and the, you know. I think, you know, and I share that opinion as well as an artist. And I and think... it's clear, it's clear the comu- that you do, which I love. <laughs> well, and I think the community felt that way, or a big part of the community. Yeah. I think the people who who differed in that opinion 
to a great extent, were not artists. I mean, there were some, right. certainly, who needed to protect themselves. And I think that that sentiment of this work, uh, my work does not address, you know, these kinds of issues. Are, um, were artists, I mean, some who work on a very formal level. Right. You know, the, the nature of the work, too, I think, is, is part of that discourse. Yeah. Are you an artist that brings in maybe narrative content or text right. or uh, images from right. daily life in that way? Or are you an artist that really works on a formal level are we working right. with what all everything the upper body can do you know or <laughs> whatever <laughs> right, it right. is um so i think that's part of the divide as well is kind of uh the sensibility of the artist um but certainly um many artists felt that even if their work tended to be more formal there needed to be a way to address what was going on um right. phyllis lamhut's piece man was really powerful i don't right. know if you ever saw that but um that just, that just, you know, you had to just wipe the floor up with me. I was just a puddle by the end. Um, but she um, worked with Manuel Alam at the time when he received his diagnosis. He was in the piece at a time when he was getting his diagnosis, which is another phenomenon in this whole sort of soup, <laughs> which mm-hmm. was um, the conversation about the diagnosis and receiving right. it or not wanting to know it. And uh-huh. do you have your diagnosis? What is your diagnosis? And that was part of the conversation. Sometimes like part of the conversation that people didn't want to engage in. Right. But that kind of entered into the room all the time, the yeah. diagnosis. Um, and certainly, well, and, and, and I, it was and called like the gift, could, right? You know right. that, that, you know, from Arnie's piece, that the gift, no God logic, is a reference right. to that. You know, the well, irony this of... thing of... And then even when you have it, what's going to go on? I mean, Harry Shepard's become such right. a... Oh, my. ...focus for me in this, even though he doesn't have an interview. Right. But because of... Um, it's just been really wild. That's been my own, uh, my own journey inside of this piece, which I knew mm-hmm. was going to happen when mm-hmm. this started, was yeah. that... Because I looked at, okay, here are the people who are interviewed. As I listen to this, there will be people who aren't, and right. then... Why and what's going on there and what am I seeing and or what am I hearing and then what am I seeing and but that it's all I don't at the same time have access to it, you know, that it's all in this uh, in a capsule. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. There's a wild thing in the in the in the sort of collection of all the things. I forget who talks about the the kind of incredible nature of people making dance at in this in this plague like what what it means to actually continue making dance while the body is being attacked right mm-hmm. um right. set against like clark tippett saying you know my dance isn't about anything mm-hmm. but we just and like that is totally kind of, right, the desire <laughs> well and you the can desire for that yeah but, and yeah, you, yeah or, right and, and the desire for that, that to be least. true yeah. that's well, and a really you can good feel point. his mm-hmm. rage Oh, yeah. in it when he yeah. says that. Yeah. You can feel, I mean, and it's something that, it was the same way, as I said earlier, when I heard Arnie say, I just mm-hmm. wish I made these Lucinda pieces. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. so deeply mm-hmm. relate to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. there is this thing as well, especially with uh, these queer men of this thing of, well, since society didn't take me seriously, why should I? Yeah, yeah. And you can feel that mm-hmm. inside of, inside of that. Yeah. It's yeah. so, I mean, it's, the Clark's, I mean, his feeling of with that institution, with ABT, the ways in which oh there have been God. these extreme 
problems Mm -hmm. that he brings up inside of it. His rage from that, Mm -hmm. that like marries, of course, with his childhood. Right. Mm -hmm. That then has these things of like doing a family visit and starting to go blind on the road. God, I mean, it's forgotten about that. I mean, it's just, it's almost, I mean, for me listening, it's been too much, which is why I've been so curious of how it was for you. Oh God. Well, one of the interviews I did with Reynaldo de Palmer, yes. not a big famous dancer, a no. good friend. And um, so incredible. incredible. Obsessed. Oh, my God. And he, here's, here's the story about that. And I don't remember if we put this in the interview or not, but he was visiting. I was living in Stuyvesant Town. You know where that is, right? On yeah, yeah, East, yeah. Um, East 14th Street. Yeah. And, um, and it's a big warren of, you know, inside Stuy Town, there are these like warrens of roads. So he comes to visit. He's on the cocktail, which is a two-hour infusion twice daily. Um, so and the, then the cocktail comes in these these really beautiful glass globes, right? And they have to be refrigerated, and they're sort of all packed and everything. And so you can get them. And so he coming from Syracuse, God forbid, whoever wants to live up there, but he <laughs> comes from Syracuse, um, where we had a great job. I would I would come up as a guest teacher. It was really fun. Great students. Um, he came to visit, and so he had to make arrangements for the medications to get delivered. And so I think he had to do it like through a New York organization, pharmacy, whatever. And they had to be refrigerated. So they weren't coming in his car with him. Um, and, he, and they had to be delivered by truck to 653 East 14th Street, apartment 5H. And he comes there and I'm at work and he's waiting for the, 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 um, the delivery. The guy calls him and can't find the apartment. I mean, it's so impossible to find anything. So he's running downstairs, running around all these roads, hailing down every truck, didn't know the guy, didn't know what it was going to look like. He spent like an hour trying to find the guys driving around, was like ready to give up. And of course, Reynaldo is terrified that the guy is going to give up and just drive back to wherever it was, the pharmacy, finally finds him and gets it. Right. And so I come home thinking everything was fine. <laughs> and he tells me about this crazy day. Um, and we set up, there's like a little, you know, like an IV pole. And you set up the little globe and he's got his infusion. And after about three or four days, we had this collection of these really beautiful glass globes. So we decided we were going to make them Christmas tree ornaments. Wow. <laughs> and he was so delighted with that idea. It was like, let's transform form this mm-hmm. into something wonderful, something beautiful, instead of like trying to throw out these glass things. Well, that, so that, that, that was... <laughs> and that but, feels like him in that interview. Yeah, There's yeah. this sense of just, of a real pure light. Yeah, he really was like that. And, you know, he said something to me that also kind of, you know, devastated me, but every all these interviews were pretty devastating. He said, yeah. you know, we're all going to die. He said, I just know how and pretty much when. Mm-hmm. That's the right. difference. And I thought that that was actually a very beautiful way of putting it. A friend of mine yeah. years later who, who actually died of cancer said to me, um, she said, you know, death sits in the corner with me every day. I've made friends with him or her, I don't know. And I can reflect on that every day. And that's just how it has to be. Yeah. I, can't, I can't be engaged. And we, we talked a lot, and, and even at that time, a lot of us talked about the, the sort of the martial metaphors for disease and how mm-hmm. that's really um, 
um, debilitating for the person mm-hmm. who is ill. I've got mm-hmm. to marshal my weapons. I've got to mm-hmm. fight. I've got to mm-hmm. strap on, you know, right, whatever right. it is. Instead of saying, I am negotiating, I am living right. with, I am, right. it's, a, it's a process as opposed to some out and out battle, which is either going to be won or lost. And the implication is the loss means you've been defeated. Do you know, it's a really, I think, well, um, and yeah, go ahead. interesting in the dance community where it's all about overcoming physical obstacles right. frequently, or at least right. that's where the, we sort of start when we get into a Western concert dance and this yeah. idea of, I'm going to show you what it's been for me to defeat naturalism. Right. And <laughs> Turn I, out. Exactly. <laughs> and the, it's extremely, I mean, my God, it's like Valentina's, don't even put the heels down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this right. thing of, we're going to just really, you know, and then later you can get your double hip replacement surgery. Right. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's this thing of at your sort of peak prowess, right. you will be able to uh, do this thing. I mean, even Martha Graham talks about in Blood Memory of it. It looks light and easy, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, that whole, it takes 10 yes. years. Right. And this, the body so. cries out mm-hmm. even in its sleep. Yes. And this idea that... And and I you know that was my training was grand so I oh my I gosh. really had that, that dancing of, from the kishkas. <laughs> I you mean, know what the kishkas it, are? The it's intestines. It's, like it's yeah, like deep, deep in deep, with the deep, core. Yes, well, and the thing yeah. of like, don't even let a drop of sweat fall on the floor. Right. There's so much <laughs> power in that. Yeah, yeah. So, I think that's this other thing that's so intense about these specific interviews because of the body yes. and the idea of yes you know, um, pending on where they're coming from. I think that's, and then it's interesting to hear the different people and their relationship to it in terms Mm -hmm. of the body or what they're going to overcome. Right. I mean, Arnie's has so much of this thing about around his makerness, Mm -hmm. around his ideas that he wanted to see go forward, even to places that could possibly change something on Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's a different kind of energy to say with that than to Clark. Mm hmm. Or the the well, dancer it, I forget his name who like came to New York just started taking dance classes and like couldn't stop, like the obsession with dance right. was so intense, and and it just like overtook him basically. Yeah. And I can't remember who that oh, was. What is his name? It'll like, come. It'll there. come to us. It'll, it'll be in float around here. It'll be in the presentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, so, so gonna, and what that yeah, was like. I'm going to talk a. It was actually one of the things that I wanted to address in my master's thesis, one of these things about the irony. I mean, there's so many levels of identity that um, that are at play here. Right. You know, first of all, being a dancer, right. male or female, puts you on really the margins of the artistic community and particularly a performance artist. They, we are like the lowest of the low. We are not musicians. We're not actors. We're dancers. And that's because of this whole notion that the body as the instrument is somehow suspect. And you would find that in the academy as well. We all know that, that, you know, that conversation. So there's that. And then as a male dancer, you're in a sort of somewhat different category, um, in modern dance in particular, but also certainly in ballet, the female body, the female dancer has really been sort of glorified Mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, And the male dancer is something special, though, in in a very positive way, very often. But then in the bigger picture, the male uh, who is a dancer and also gay is marginalized even further. And therefore, 
male, dancer, gay, yeah, right. and sick is, I mean, it, it doesn't even, margin doesn't even yeah. begin to describe it. So, you know, just mm-hmm. barely non-existent right. in terms of what could be looked at, what could be embraced, what could be part of our community. I mean, not our dance community, but kind of the over the, the larger social community. And so all of those right. levels of identity were being addressed in the plague. And they were always um, at play. And uh, figuring out how to handle it. I mean, I think gay men's health crisis was uh, a really, really important part of bringing that identity to uh, a, a really active place. You know, we are, we are the gay men's health crisis. We are looking at this. We are marshalling our resources, our, our identity, our identity as educated men who have access to information. I mean, that was so, so important. Um, but it was part of that whole kind of negotiation yep. of whose voice is going to be heard. And as you know, in, um, in the Latin community, in the African-American community, um, there was just nothing but silence. And particularly in the Latin community where um, um, identifying oneself as gay was really complicated. Very, very complicated um, for lots of reasons. So there was a lot of information that wasn't available to men who really were gay but didn't identify publicly as gay. So they didn't and couldn't therefore get access to the whatever health... um, resources were available to them. I mean, just a very complicated cultural um, phenomenon, I think, you know, in terms of just various levels of identity. And in the, and so in your thesis, as you were writing about the, the gay dance body with AIDS, and then what that means in terms of, as you were saying, it's not even marginalized. It's like, a different, just disappears, just gone. Mm-hmm. That, that it's like level a, it's, of it's just an absence. Yeah. yeah. It's, I think, and that's been the thing that inside of listening to these and inside of this idea of what we're going to make, what we're going to present, has felt... I mean, I begin every semester, I'm a teacher at Bard, I begin every semester mm-hmm. talking about AIDS and the culture wars. Wow. And what happened for me in terms of someone who would have had people above me right. to support new work exactly. that they were already making, mm-hmm. that so it wouldn't be this whole... Uh, oh, I'm just making in a vacuum or in this black space. So the, mm-hmm. all these people go, I think about Reza Abda and Harry Condolian right, a lot. Harry right. Condolian was a playwright who uh-huh. was at mm-hmm. Yale and probably graduate was graduated by this time, was making work in New York at, mm-hmm. at the time of all this happening. But that what's going on for people in my generation is so many of us, some know, some don't, are reaching backwards into the dark Yes. while we try to help the younger generation yeah. go forward. And the level of, it's not even, it's, I mean, talking about the stages of grief is, doesn't cover it mm-hmm. because it's actually absence. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a thing of void. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then how do you even talk about it? How do you even make something from it? And um, it's, and I don't have anything else to say yeah, at the end yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that was something that I think we were all talking about. I know I've said a million times, I think I even said this in my thesis, but just in the conversation with people in general, whoever I would, you know, whoever will talk about this will hear from me for hours and hours at a time. But one of the <laughs> things that I also tell my students is that dance is uh, an oral tradition. Mm. It's taught body to body. 
So is choreography. Right. And even if you're right. learning choreography that was not created on your body, it's taught body to body. Right. And even the creation of music for dance, you know, the sort of ancillary right. things, it's all an oral process. And it requires right. presence. And a whole swath was cut through. A whole generation disappeared. So as you're just saying, the mm. teachers that might have been teaching you gone. The choreography you might have been learning as a member of a company or having stuff being created on you, gone. There's this body of, literal body of information. And the audience, the the writers, the composers, I mean, everything gone. And for example, the, the writers who disappeared, you know, their perspective as sort of, um, of the same generation of the artists who are creating work, you know, that perspective is gone. Um, and some that will, and artists that will never know, you know, writers right. that we will never know. Uh, for for me, going into this, uh, going into the library, my my first uh, sort of frame around this project was this idea of dance as this uh, kind of lost form that it's like always being lost because it is performed mm, mm. and then it's gone. It's ephemeral, right. yeah. Um, so, like, documentation um, and the, la- the, the lack of object. So, like, what are we left with? Mm-hmm. And it's in the oral uh, recording. Is it, It's an interesting format because, for me, it feels like it really... It gives you something, but it, for, for me, it's been pointing to how much is lost. Yeah. There's a sense yes. of there's no body here. I'm not. Mm-hmm. There's no image. Right. Yeah. I have this right. kind of like ghost voice. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, like the library and like the the uh, the difficulty in researching and uh, uh, you know the 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 limited number of these recordings and it all it all really leads to the, like a deep sense mm-hmm. of loss. <laughs> Well, I mean, even just to get access to them, I mean, it's this thing of of how one's going to get access to them. Or if you want the transcript that you're going to need to fill something out and go to the, you know, rare book section. And I think that... Oh, my. It shouldn't be that complicated. I mean, I don't know how it... Some of them are. Some of... I mean, it's the... If you want the transcript, then you're going to go read it. You know, I mean, Well, you know, compared to, like internet culture right it's mm-hmm. like true it true, feels right. you have to go physically be there yeah. and yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 that's true and i know that's something Ca- cassie is wanting to address Absolutely. you know i think yeah. it may take another you know 50 years but, right, right, yeah. right 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 but it's really important to address that because the information needs to be out there but to get back to what we were saying a little bit earlier jeremy um First of all, Andre Lepecki's work. Do you know yes, him Yes, of course. He, didn't he do that wonderful book, which I can't remember, but it's really about right. absence. Right, that, yes. So there's a, yes. some thoughts about and Peggy Phelan's, well, was, you know, and, piece in that. But Andre, was was he there with you at performance studies no, at that time? No, no, He was after right. me. Right, right, right. Um, but I just, you know, that book comes to mind when we talk about absence. And um, in terms of the oral history project itself, so this, um, the whole big project, um, of course, when it started in, I think it was 1974, video was this like enormous thing and you had to have like a cart and a truck right. and mm-hmm. it was just this huge right, thing. Right. And then it became a little bit more manageable, you know, as a technology. But in many of the interviews I did, not 
AIDS oral history interviews, I found that for a lot of people, particularly of an older generation, they were so much more comfortable speaking into a tape recorder than if I had been videotaping them or... um, which actually probably would have needed to have someone else video. So there would be Mm -hmm. a a third Mm -hmm. person in the room standing behind a camera. For them, that level of um, documentation would have been, would have really been inhibiting, I think. Um, So like Dorothy Bird, for example, Mm. she never would have been able to have, but she was just like, she became my grandmother. I mean, just, just, you know, Mm. wonderful, wonderful stories. And I wished I'd had a, um, a tape recorder, I mean a video recorder, because she would get up and demonstrate how Martha right. showed them things, yeah. and she was just fabulous. But she could not have done that if there had been video. Um, and for many of the people that I interviewed in the AIDS project, although you know we talked about the fact that this was an oral recording, uh, it wasn't explicit. But I felt that for so, so many of them, because their body had been their instrument, the body was now ravaged by the illness, for that to be the documentation left, yeah. um, you know, at that point in their lives, uh, I think would have been really unacceptable to them. Totally. Um, right. Whereas you can now go and see Burton Taylor dancing with the Joffrey. Right. You can hear his interview knowing that that was a different stage of his life. But yeah. so it's a, so, yeah. you know, it was a negotiation in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, so. we definitely... The, it's a whole other machine to make a video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it totally is. Yes. Well, and also yeah. I, and it makes, I mean, as a performer, once yeah. the camera's on you, it's a different mm-hmm. Totally. Thing. You show up differently. Yeah. Yeah. Even if very... you're having, even if you're having a conversation, once the camera's on, you just know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in this, I'm just making sure I don't yeah. even look at what I, I'm not looking at me at all and keeping my eyes laser focused on you and trying to. That's what I'm doing too, that little corner thing. Yeah. I'm like, it doesn't, it. it doesn't exist. And I mean, and I think that that's such a big, and that's such an interesting point to bring up around the AIDS Oral History Project Yeah, is that it does really feel that you have created these containers for people to say things that are as intimate as a journal entry yeah. and, and that feel, or that feel, and I mean, and I think in Friedman's work, when he talks about how we how do you make the container for it? It's very psychological. It's very mm-hmm. about creating a safe space yes, where huge. someone will be able to come forward rather than any mm-hmm. sort of probing. Right. And I think that's yes. what is so intense about when, it just folds into oral history project is that that opening container, that opening prompt not given by the interviewer is gone. Mm -hmm. And, um, that, that it just, it changes it because they don't have that container Mm -hmm. at that point to feel that they're even walking into a state, uh, where they could be open Mm -hmm. because it's, uh, it's it, the the person interviewing isn't going to say so. Do you have AIDS? Yeah, right, right. Um, because that would that would then change the whole dialogue. Absolutely, and and that that was the point is to make it about something different, and that yeah. would all fold that in. That could be open. Yeah. That could be yeah. open for them. But when they yeah. know that it's there, mm-hmm. it allows their mind to relax. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, when we go back to marshalling or right, relaxing. Right. You know, or mm-hmm. of like accepting, allowing mm-hmm. versus forcing and pushing. So a, a big part of those conversations was the pre, pre-conversation. 
How what did that we talk go? about? Um, you know, we just say, let's, let's talk about what we're going to do before we get set up. Right. And I would sort of say, here's how I'm going to set it up and we'll test it and do all that stuff. Right. There's a little bit of an intro that I'm going to do. Um, but here's what interests me. Right. Um, and I would like to know what interests you. Right. And I would always, we talk a little bit for a while and then I'd say, and at any point, we can stop. Yeah. You know, it's, we have complete control. This is not, you know, live TV or something. Yeah. We can stop it. And if you want to take a break or I'll come back next week or, you know, you want to just think for a moment, you know, and we can and we would sometimes talk off the tape to sort of review something and say, you know, he says, I really do want to come back to this. So we'll come back to it. Right. You know, I felt that that was critical because I want them to feel they have control over the information. Of and, course the situation so yeah that's so important and it never it never feels exploitative it never feels um they they never feel that way it always feels very honoring and then it's so interesting to hear where humor comes in Mm -hmm. or where it's you know just the relationships of Mm -hmm. people and of those who you know those who you're getting to know Mm -hmm. those who you don't know Mm -hmm. yeah uh how close someone's going to be, how far someone's going to be, and that that's all allowed is so imperative in these. Yeah, I think so. And it's, I don't have a formula for that, but I feel, right. um, uh, I just feel lucky that that was able to happen in different ways in every conversation, that it had to be different. And mm-hmm. I had, and, and the word honor is something that, um, you know, yeah. it really sticks with me. I felt honored. Um, and so, and curious, and you know, you know, when someone is curious about what you're doing and who you are, then I feel like that it was, and it was a genuine curiosity and interest. I, yeah. you know, hope they felt that yeah, so absolutely. that I think maybe made it work. Oh, it definitely feels that way. It definitely feels that your curiosity and that the, and I think it's this also, again, a different thing for particularly dancers, not as much choreographers, but if someone asking them about themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very yeah. different. It's because it's, it's, really it's been important. a whole thing of you're an instrument exactly. for this thing, and then it's like, well, how are you? Yeah, and you know, and you know, and I and it begins of this thing of where did you grow up? Mm-hmm. I mean, especially for these gay men, that is a loaded question. Huge. That is a loaded question. Huge. And it and it frequently in these opens the door. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. It, uh, I spent a little bit of time with Cassie May, going mm-hmm. th- like looking at the process uh, of doing these interviews and how much work, like getting the transcript, Ugh. getting, you know, checking Huge. back in with Huge. people to make sure yeah. everything is okay, okay for them. Mm-hmm. Right. It's an incredibly like careful as in like full of care. Yes. Yeah. So it was oh, yeah. really yeah. incredible to see. Um, and she had said something, you know, we, ta- we were talking about the nature of like an oral history versus video or mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. a transcript and she was saying that there was a time when i guess when recording became an option it was really just used as a way to get to a transcript in that huh. there's a process yeah. of actually yeah. legitimizing the oral right. recording as an artifact well you know um that has sort of always been my mission yeah um because you know, partly as a performer, I understand how rich the voice is mm-hmm. and what the voice carries. Um, and I always felt, because one of the first things I did when I was a young dancer and I just volunteered at the library, I said, do you need anybody to do anything? I figured, you know, 
maybe there'd be a job someday, but I didn't know what it, you know if there yeah. would be. And they said, you know, we really need somebody to uh, proofread the transcripts against the tapes, just make sure that the transcriber didn't get the names wrong and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. the very first interview I um, proofread was Moira Shearer's interview, you know, the oh, red shoes. Oh my God, yeah. You have to, someday you have to listen to that. She talks about how she got to do this movie and how right. great it was and how everybody hated her. <laughs> when she went back to the company, they hated her. And she Out of jealousy? Yeah, totally. And yeah, she just yeah. like didn't know what to do and she talks about working with Messi and it was, it was anyway, right. but what I realized was for me, and I, I'm not the only person to realize this, of course, is that listening to her speak, I got right. so much more of what her experience was than just reading it on the tape. I mean, reading it on the transcript. Well, and that's, again, to go back to Clark, it's mm-hmm. this thing of like, um, oh, my dances are about nothing. Oh, now, you read, read that on the transcript, that's what it says. You hear it on the tape, you can hear the subtext. Yes. And then when we think about theater and the play of subtext and how, oh, there's many ways you can alert subtext. I mean, mm-hmm. I think of like Evo Van Hove, the director, kind of choreographs your subtext mm-hmm. as you're talking. That's sort of like <laughs> I feel what he's become famous for is let's show the subtext. Yeah. And But in this... It is, it's, it is sonic. Yeah. You can, you hear it. It's through it that yeah. it's, it's how you're on a phone with a friend. Yeah, of course. And, and you're, and they're like, mm-hmm. and you're like, I, I can't make it. Is that okay? And they go, that's fine. Right. Yeah. Versus and you can, message. and you can hear the resentment. <laughs> right. And yes. And exactly with text messaging, yes. it's like where, it's like where humor can really like not land in yes, a text. Totally. People are like, how dare you? And you're like, oh, I'm sorry, babe. That was sarcasm or <laughs> yeah. whatever. Yeah. You know, it's, Absolutely. it wasn't. Yeah. It's a completely different thing. And we I talked about it with Linda, um, I think around Damien Aquavella's uh, yes. of, of how devastating it was for her to hear. Ugh. And, you know, if you read the transcript, it'd be a very different thing. Yeah, And it's so much about what this fellowship, I feel all the fellowships that are happening right now for their 75th are about, mm-hmm. are is about actually bringing awareness to what's there. Did we lose you? Yeah, just for one second. You said... Oh, great. Hold on. Well, and that's sort of perfect. There. <laughs> right. It was... It was it, well, yeah, the lost. thing was, the thing... I feel that the, what these fellowships are about are about bringing awareness to what's there in the library. Yeah. Because who would know? Who would go? Yeah. And we do have, especially when we are in, uh, you know, from everywhere from academia to Netflix, you, there's now a... a plethora of things written about AIDS, about the feelings around it, all the way from the theoretical to the emotional, Mm -hmm. to the um, autobiographic, to the biographic, uh, and of course, into these other uh, sort of psychoanalytic ideas around how we view virus and disease, and Mm -hmm. do we trace that back to our toe? And I mean, we could go on and on (laughs) about things like that. Very different to hear someone who, and for me, what's been so devastating is hearing people I'll never see. That's right. I'll never, I'll never be in front of them. Yeah. And it's just not, it, it's a thing of missing something that's impossible to start. Mm-hmm. It's missing someone before I even had the possibility of the engagement, you know? And that is, um, I'm so grateful that that work is there because it's changed, it's changed my relationship to this thing I already had a relationship to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just deepened the tragedy. Yeah. yeah, it's it hasn't given me a sense of 
you know, it's because it's not about comfort. It's about reality. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, well, what's art for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it to comfort you and help you go to sleep, help you feel okay at the end of the day? <laughs> or is it about to wake you up yeah. and help maybe deepen your compassion yeah. and open you up? And, well, and and to see other people in the way that they live and the way that yes, they experience yeah. the world and understand yes. things and you know their lives. Or are we supposed to all prescribe to right. a, a single vision right. of what it is to be a person? Right, reiterating ideas of beauty, right. you know, that are old and misogynist and and only culturally and all those defined. Sorts of right. You know, beauty yes, is, exactly. is culturally defined. So thank you, Leslie, for doing well, that work. Incredible. And it's so wild to hear how it happened. <laughs> yes, and the work you continue to do. And I think that's so. it's so imperative that teachers explain, and especially at an undergraduate level, Yes. at an undergraduate yes. level of the reason you're so upset. You know, <laughs> I get that you're angry. And we're all angry when we're young. But, and we're all angry right now. And we're all angry mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Big time. And so... But what you get to understand and what you're imparting to through now your teaching practice as well is that of like, you know, here I am in front of you and now picture, you know, hundreds of thousands of people all gone standing around me. You know, sometimes I to get because AIDS to most students is some kind of distant thing that happens in Africa. Right. Um, right. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I say to them is um, I want you to look around the room and I want you to choose this class of 20 kids. I want you to choose 15 people who are going to leave the room and never come back. Yeah. And there'll be five of you left. Wow. And those 15 people go away and you never see them again. And they are your friends. They are your age yeah. They're not grandparents. They're not somebody in a plane crash in right. Siberia, you know. And I, it, they, and you don't get it, to choose which get, fifteen actually. Right, yeah. right. They just, yeah, right. Exactly. And it's not, and it might include you, right. <laughs> right. And it's a thing of that. It's not some, and also know that there's a government that knows and is selecting to not help. Yeah, that that they're. That they are, that you also have a government that believes that this is okay. That is, it's it's allowing for a Holocaust, right? Yeah. yeah, right. It's really and and of course you know how can when I was, I mean I grew up at the time when so as just as I was coming as I was like nine or ten was when it was like AIDS kills gay people on the front of you know every God. everywhere. Yeah. So I'm going into my sexuality with this thing, and there's so many people from my generation who have. OCD AIDS panic, which is, uh, yeah, you know, which I've, because also the PEP happens around mm-hmm. as we're all coming into our sexuality. So friends who were, uh, and myself who would go on the PEP if there was a condom break, which is, you know, mm-hmm. basically at this, at this point in the early aughts was like doing a month of chemo. I mean, it was oh, so, God. cause it was doing Kaletra, Sestiva, and one other one. And then you would just get sick. Sometimes there would oh be like God. hallucinations. I mean, all that sort of stuff that would, oh yeah, I remember oh I remember God. having that with Sestiva. I mean, Sestiva at this point Jeez. in the early aughts was known to do um, like phantom limb stuff and night terrors oh my was God, what they told I had me no at the idea. beginning of it. Incredible. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I remember. I mean, I went on those drugs. And then I would think about it in the time of, and I'm lucky that I have these. Yeah. It was really, well, and one of them, I mean, uh, there was a time, uh, there was a condom break. I decided to go on the PEP, and that's how the person who I had slept with found out they were positive. Because <gasps> he, I, I was like, these drugs are so hard Jesus on me. Christ. I was doing, I was in Camelot the oh. musical at the time in DC, oh having God. to. I went on Sestiva the night before my, oh my dance God. call, so I like woke up thinking there were bats on me, and then I was like, oh, oh that's geez. right, they told me there were night terrors, and I said, can you please check your status? Because I would love to not do this. Oh, wow. Medication. And then he called, and that's wow. how he found out he was positive. Wow. Oh so my, my relationship to it has been one of being on these drugs, thinking that I had zero converted, not mm. zero converting, thinking about people uh, who have, having friends of mine who have, of course, um, uh, zero converted in my lifetime, mm. and now to mm. this weird place we're in with PrEP where mm-hmm. all of my friends are now on prep and then it's all this like condomless sex. And it's just... Right. The, the, it's the, a very different relationship to all of that. It is. And it goes back to what you said in the beginning of when we started, we didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. And here we are still not knowing what's going to happen. I think But that's the imperative true. of having these voices, I mean, even though, and they told me this when I started the research, they were like, it'll be the tip of the iceberg. And I'm still unclear of what I can possibly make because I don't think I want to just um, lily pad across a bunch of names and give a little sentence Mm -hmm. on each. It just Mm -hmm. doesn't feel correct. Um, Well, I mean, I I feel like the great benefit of listening to these interviews as a, as a group is, is actually the, the devastating reality of, feeling how much is lost and, and, mm-hmm. you know, and not turning that into some resentment. Right. I mean, I think lean into the resentment mm-hmm. in your own mm-hmm. experience and feel how mm-hmm. much is lost and be angry. But then also think about how much there is to give to the next generation. Correct. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. And you know, the work that you're doing is part of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely the biggest that. part of that. Yeah. Well, it's that thing of that the bridge somehow has to be the people who survived. And yeah. And then I do, and I think there is that thing of keeping the education going because this thing that I've talked about of the resentment in a generation that feels they don't have support. I mean, how the, how even my beginning of thinking about this was I was on a panel in my early 20s and we were talking about, why is this so hard for us? And this 50-year-old man stood up and said, everyone who would have helped you died of AIDS and walked out. Oh, my God. Because we were all these avant-garde oh my theater God. and dance yeah. makers. And then I was like, yeah. oh. And then I oh and then God. read That's Karen so Finley's A Different Kind of Intimacy where she talks mm. about going through the NEA4 and then we have the culture wars and then we mm-hmm. have oh, right. our, people right, are right, sick right. and just trying to get the government to take care of that while the government's like, this work is morally apprehensible. So you have mm. this thing of, and it is what's really interesting of like when Arnie talks about his resentment with Merce, mm. you know, where he's <laughs> like, he's gay or why is this happening? And uh, it's, it's so complex. 
Mm-hmm. It's so complex mm-hmm. of then also like, well, then where did the money go? And then what and how de-sexed was that work? How or, you know, how safe mm-hmm. or again, mm-hmm. is it? And I, I love formalism. And like I am well, Arnie yeah. like that where I was like, I wish I could make mm-hmm. a Lucida Child's piece. Well, that's, not the, in my that's the difficulty <laughs> of, of cr- critique there as well, because mm-hmm. you're also like, well, that also feels like that is Merce Cunningham's work. That is his work. You Absolutely. Know, right? that, is yeah. his voice. that is his work. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think understanding that there were big funding shifts happening mm-hmm. that, you know, Terry O'Connor mm-hmm. was there. There was an NEA. I mean, he could get $12,000 a year. That's <laughs> when I, if you take, I would like $12,000 a year now, you right. know, right. year, like year, the 20, what, 20 some years later, I would love $12,000 now. Yeah. It's so, and and then you think about this, these people got a, or I, I'm thinking of like these granting systems of, um, where it's like, oh, they're going to get $12,000 a year for three years. And the huge impact it makes on choreographers now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was there. Mm-hmm. And then it was gone. And it was gone. And I think that, in too, and there's a thing that is so incredible. It's either Dance USA or Dance Magazine. There's a whole, when they do this whole, the whole article about HIV, AIDS, and as dance community, it's also choreographers being completely unable to deal with that this healthcare system that they've been in of well you'll be pay- you'll have healthcare for these weeks and then you'll figure it out mm-hmm. on the weeks you don't right, it'll be okay right. you'll right. you'll have an osteopath or someone you can go see that wouldn't be covered by insurance anyway then when it shifts to you absolutely have to have medical care and we're not prepared we don't know how to deal with cobra under these circumstances mm-hmm. yeah and as you were saying earlier of where dance even falls in terms of like you know just above poetry in terms of where it's even falling, right. in terms of We do of have to acknowledge that structure. The, the poets are really scum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They <laughs> really, they're really getting the fuzzy of the lollipop. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. But at least they have an object at the end. That's, That's true. They do have something That's that true. lasts, whereas this is mm-hmm. ephemeral. It just disappears. And and we talked about this in our proposal to the library of that dance is the closest to death in that way. It's mm-hmm. so labor intensive, and then it it's is. here, and then it's gone and then it's gone yeah um leslie i can't thank you enough for speaking with us oh yeah what a pleasure and for all and so wonderful i want to hear more about your presentation but you probably have other stuff to do is there can i come see what you're doing i would be beyond honored if you would come yeah yeah yeah. i'll send you the dates and all of that it's january i mean we have the postcard right here it's january show to the yeah yeah it's I can show it's January twenty fourth. Fourth, and okay. it's from ten a.m. to six p.m. But we know that we're going last, so we'll be somewhere in the we'll be at like five. Okay, that's that's when it'll be. But also, I would love um, to hear more about your teaching work and uh, for us to get to have another chat. Yeah, I we would, should definitely do that. I would love that. I would Yay. love that. Well, you got to work on your thing. This has been <laughs> such a pleasure. I can't even tell you. I'm so excited. I'm so excited about what you're doing, your interest in this. It's so fabulous. I am I am certainly ballistically interested and that it is very <laughs> and as you know from doing it, it's exhausting and a toll and It is. Uh, the it number is. of times I have sat in that library and sobbed Cassie and Linda have both been with me while I've been sobbing hysterically in front of them saying, I don't know how to deal with this because there is no preparation. 
you can, I mean, and I've, I'm someone who I would say is pretty prepared. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, I've been in therapy my whole life. I've gone, I've actually been on the PEP. I've had friends who have HIV. Um, yeah. And, but to hear these voices, there is no way yeah. to prepare for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. I'm going to have to go ahead to rehearsal. You're going to go mm-hmm. teach. Have a good one. And yes. um, I can't thank you again. Thank, I mean, My thank you enough. Absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. And we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so Great. much. And I'm, I'm coming on the 24th. Send me the stuff. I really want to come. <laughs>